The year was 1929. Alex's grandparents left Chicago for Louisville, probably fleeing the mafia after the St. Valentine's Day massacre, and got married so he could be born one day. The Emporium was built and established as a brand spanking new rural general store. The Great Depression began, but they didn't call it that yet. The Vatican became an independent state. The first Academy Awards were held. Ernest Hemingway published A Farewell to Arms. Tintin, everyone's second favorite French comic book, after Asterix et Obelisk, of course, was published. The sky was filled with zeppelins. Arches, Acadia, and Grand Teton National Parks were established under the presidency of Herbert Hoover, who also passed the less popular Increased Penalties Act to uphold prohibition. Mickey Mouse got gloves, Popeye was published, the women of Egypt were granted limited rights to divorce, and Audrey Hepburn was born. Al Capone finally went to jail. Anne Frank was born. The first color TV broadcast happened. The Geneva Convention was signed, as was the Treaty for the Suez Canal. On 16th August, 133 Jews and 116 Palestinians lost their lives in the Palestine riots. Another 88 Jews would be killed before the end of the month. In September, two typhoons struck the Philippines, causing over 100 deaths. India passed the Child Marriage Restraint Act. London decided to only run red buses forever. Salvador Dali had his first solo show. Grace Kelly was born. Turkey granted women the right to vote. And in Australia, John Mules found a unique way to prevent fly strike. This is ovinology. I hope to be able to provide a complete, fair, and cohesive look at the practice of mulesing. To do so, we're going to have to do a fair bit of jumping from topic to topic. I'm not sure what kind of warning to give with this episode. It does discuss surgical procedures, pain, and maggots, but there's nothing to see, and if I do this right, you won't be tempted to look it up. So there's that. Ready? Help each other with bug spray. And don your gloves. You're going to need them. Baba Merino sheep, have you any wool? Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Three bags full. Don't you know the Merino sheep are all mortgaged to the bank? This is not something I thought I'd discuss, but it's a hot button issue in fashion and animal welfare. And you know, if there's one thing I, Madeline Rosenberg, enjoy, it's setting the record straight. Caveat. I do not raise merinos, and I do not mules my sheep. I have experienced fly strike in my sheep, even though the breeds I raise do not have butt wrinkles, and I can honestly say that no farming experience, from blood to birth to diarrhea to death and rotting bodies, is as thoroughly disgusting as fly strike. Nothing. Let's journey from the general to the technical. Okay, what is fly strike? Exactly like it sounds. Flies love summer and they're attracted to poop. They look for hot and humid places to lay their eggs, places that the larvae will be protected and have a ready food source. What better place than on the rear end of a sweaty sheep? Okay, we're going to need to talk about tail docking too. I can already tell. But let's finish this thought. Swarms of flies, sweaty, greasy sheep. They lie on the ground and poop. Sometimes the poop collects in the wool around the tail and bridge. The longer or thicker the wool, the greater risk that flies will land and deposit their eggs. 
This can also happen in other areas of the body, particularly on cattle who are prone to be swarmed by flies. But another common area for sheep is pull strike, where rams who are headbutting and abrading the skin attract flies to that bloody raw area, and the same thing occurs. So now imagine it in your brain. Ew. Anyway, egg depositing. It doesn't sound so bad, right? We'll come back tomorrow. Now our sheep, who wasn't able to swat the flies away because she has a short tail, has hundreds and thousands of maggots hatching and crawling and eating into her rear end. I I can't. If you haven't seen it, just don't. It's the worst. It's like a bag of white rice came to life and is eating your favorite buddy from the butt. Sheep hate to stand out, so in large flocks, a producer might lose several sheep before they realize what's up. The remedy to fly strike is a whole lot of work and prayer. The sheep has to be sheared down to the damaged skin. The area must be dried. Maggots completely removed by hand. The ones inside and out, which means salt and caustics and an absolutely miserable sheep. And then the wounds treated. And then you have to keep it from happening again. To say it's upsetting is the understatement of 2019. Take a second if you need it. Think of tiny happy lambs frolicking in new spring grass. Think of kittens. Go look at Instagram for 52 seconds. Unless you're driving, then don't. Deep breath. In. Out. Ready? Naturally, producers do not want their animals to suffer, and they'd like to avoid the emotional scarring of dealing with fly strike. But sheep aren't going to stop pooping, and summer can't be canceled. Flies are impossible to eradicate. So what do you do? Problem number one. Many of our quote-unquote improved sheep breeds, including Zwartbulls, Baldwin Welsh Mountain, Lesters and Merinos have naturally long tails. This derives from the fat-tailed sheep that we were talking about, like the Tunis. We, as humans, over the centuries and millennia, developed such a yen for fat tail soup and other dishes that we favored the sheep that had longer tails. Thus, that became a trait. So long-tailed ewes collect blood and goo on their tails and backsides during lambing. Having a long tail in one's face in the event assistance is required is unpleasant. And long tails, while better fly swatters, are prone to collect more poop. Solution number one, dock tails. Caveat, I raise short-tailed sheep, with a couple of exceptions I'd like to rehome. I don't have to dock tails. We only castrate when necessary or when someone wants to purchase a weather and then I have the vet do it. I know about these things, but I choose not to have the practice as part of my management protocol. Tail docking should be done at the same time as castration, after 24 hours, but before the the end of the first week of life, and by a similar method. Now, banding cuts off the blood supply that feeds the area, and after a couple weeks, it balls or tail, falls off. We also use clamping or crushing to damage and seal off the blood supply within the parts to be removed, which is faster but more painful and carries greater risk. These methods also can't be done by a single person. You may be thinking that all farmers should have helpers, staff, vets, and access to pain meds or not raise sheep at all. Labor is expensive, 
And help, especially reliable help, is difficult to find. Vets are busy and expensive, and frankly, these are jobs that all of us are trained and capable of doing ourselves. We don't need the vet for everything. When I say we're living on a razor's edge, working with profit margins of percentages of ascent, it's not hyperbole. Everything matters. We have to do what we can ourselves. But pain management, well, that's a different matter. That's policy. We are about to lose not only access to pain meds, which can only be administered by a licensed veterinarian, but to antibiotics as well. The government wants to make it so the only way a sick sheep can get treatment is to have the vet out every 24 hours to give it a shot. You probably think that's great because we're all overdosing our animals and food has too many antibiotics in it, right? Wrong. Nothing at the grocery store has antibiotics in it because of a thing called withdrawal period. It's been law for many years that an animal has to wait a certain amount of time before it can be sold or slaughtered or eggs collected or milk collected and sold, usually about 10 to 14 days, to make absolutely sure that none of those drugs remain in the meat. I'm not just talking about antibiotics here. It applies to things like pain meds and chemical dewormers as well. I mean, maybe you like to eat a lot of raw bread dough. I don't know your life. And you have a gut full of strongels and you would personally benefit from eating a steak full of ivermectin. But that's not the case for most of us. So to recap, there are no antibiotics in the food you buy. Also, 50 to 80% of the meat on your plate comes from overseas. That's right, we're not even stocking our stores with domestic product. And other countries have access to way more drugs, different drugs than we do, with less regulation about who gives it. So maybe instead of tying U.S. producers' hands from keeping the animals we love healthy, we should be worried about country of origin labeling. To support American producers, please visit the FDA website before December 24th. Give us a nice Christmas present and leave your comment that they should not ban over-the-counter antibiotics. The link is in the show notes for your convenience. I'd rather you did this than rate the podcast this week, guys. Please. It matters, and you have the power to make a real difference. Back to our little docked sheep. Access and vets aren't the only reason we don't typically use pain meds for these procedures. Small ruminants do not respond well to the meds we use on other animals. For instance, they're extremely hard to anesthetize because they tend to regurgitate and choke to death. Darn that rumen. Likewise, pain meds need careful monitoring, something that is literally impossible when docking and castrating hundreds and thousands of lambs. Here's the thing. Sheep are prey animals. They're designed to be caught and mauled or munched on and hopefully get away. They have thick skin, expendable wrinkles, and high pain tolerance, and they don't dwell. Animals live moment to moment. They don't think about what's coming next or what happened yesterday. Lambs don't even think about what happened 30 seconds ago. I think they have a shorter attention span than goldfish. I want to share part of Mike Rowe's TED Talk, available on YouTube, to help explain this phenomenon from an outsider's perspective. Normally, I never do any research at all. But this is a touchy subject, and I work for the Discovery Channel, and we want to portray accurately whatever it is we do. And we certainly want to do it with uh, a lot of respect for the animals. So I call the Humane Society, and I say, look, I'm going to be castrating some lambs. Can you tell me the deal? And they're like, yeah, it's pretty straightforward. They use a, a band, basically, a, a rubber 
band. What exactly is the process? And they said the band is applied to the tail tightly, and then another band is applied to the scrotum tightly. Blood flow is slowly retarded. A week later, the parts in question fall off. Great, got it. Melanie is the wife of Albert. Albert's the shepherd in question. Melanie picks up the lamb, two hands, uh, one hand on both legs on the right, likewise on the left. Lamb goes on the post. She opens it up. All right, great. Albert goes in. I follow Albert. The crew's around. I always watch the process done the first time before I try it. Being an apprentice, you know, you do that. Albert reaches in his pocket to pull out, you know, this black rubber band, but what comes out instead is a knife. And uh, I'm like, mm, that's not rubber at all, you know. And <laughs> in the space of about two seconds, Albert had the knife between the cartilage of the tail, right next to the butt of the lamb, and very quickly the tail was gone and in the bucket that I was holding. A second later, with a big thumb and a well-calloused forefinger, he had the scrotum firmly in his grasp, and he pulled it toward him like so, and he took the knife, and he put it on the tip. Now, you think you know what's coming, Michael. You don't. Okay. <laughs> he snips it, throws the tip over his shoulder, and then grabs the scrotum and pushes it upward, and then his head dips down, obscuring my view. But what I hear is a slurping sound and a noise that sounds like Velcro being yanked off a sticky wall, and I'm not even kidding. I do something now I've never, ever done on a dirty job shoot, ever. I say, time out, stop. I said, stop. This is nuts. I mean, you know what, this is crazy. We, we can't do this, you know? And Albert's like, what? And I'm like, I don't know what just happened, but there are testicles in this bucket, and, and, you know, that's not how we do it. He said, well, that's how we do it. And I said, why would you do it this way? And before I even let him explain, I said, I want to do it the right way with the rubber bands. And he says, like the Humane Society? And I said, yes, like the Humane Society. Let's do something that doesn't make the lamb squeal and bleed. He says, okay. He goes to his box and he pulls out a bag of these little rubber bands. Melanie picks up another lamb, puts it on the post. Band goes on the tail, band goes on the scrotum. Lamb goes on the ground. Lamb takes two steps, falls down. Gets up, shakes a little. Takes another couple steps, falls down. I'm like, this is not a good sign for this lamb at all. Gets up, walks to the corner, it's quivering, and it lies down, and it's in obvious distress. And I'm, I'm looking at the lamb, and I say, Albert, how long? Just, you know, when's he get up? He's like, a day? I said, a day? How long does it take him to fall off? A week. Meanwhile, the lamb that he had just did his little procedure on, he's, you know, he's just prancing around, bleeding stopped, he's, you know, nibbling on some grass, frolicking. And... I was just so blown away at how completely wrong I was in that, in that second. And I was reminded how utterly wrong I am so much of the time. <laughs> and I was especially reminded of how, what a ridiculously short straw I had that day, because now I had to do what Albert had just done, and there are like a hundred of these lambs in the pen. <laughs> Melanie picks up the lamb, puts it on the post, opens it up. Albert hands me the knife. I go in, tail comes off. I go in, I grab the scrotum, tip comes off. Albert instructs, push it way up there. I do. Push it further. I do. The testicles emerge. They look like thumbs coming right at you, right? And uh, he says, bite them. Just, <laughs> just bite them off. And I heard him. I heard all the words. Like, how did, how did I get here? How did, I mean, how did I get here? 
it's just, it's just one of those moments where the brain goes, you know, off on its own. So I did what, you know, I had to do. I went in, and I took him, I took him like this, and I yanked my head back, and I'm standing there with two testicles on my chin. <laughs> and as I stood there, looking at the happy lamb that, uh, you know, I had just defiled, but it looked okay looking at that poor other little thing that I'd done it the right way on. And I just was struck by, if I'm, if, I'm wrong about, if I'm wrong about that, and if I'm wrong so often in a, in a literal way, what other misconceptions might I be able to comment upon? So, no pain meds for docking and castration. These procedures have to be done at a certain time of life and of the year, also to prevent fly strike. See how I brought it back? Problem number two, tail docking doesn't solve fly strike, at least not in Australia. Merinos have extremely wrinkly skin, especially over the hips and above the stifle. Wrinkles slow shearing, and the only way to keep poop from collecting is to keep that wool skin level short. But how are you supposed to shear your flock of 2,000 Merinos every month to keep the wool down? Solution number two, mulesing. If they don't have wool, they don't need shearing. I mean, you can't fault the logic. Guys, we just fought the first world war with mustard gas and trench warfare and truly horrible things. Cutting some skin off a sheep didn't seem so bad. All right, we have to walk through this, so just, I don't even know. Grab your teddy bear or cat or dog and prepare to squirm. Okay. At the same time the lamb is castrated and docked, they cut a crescent of skin from what would be our hamstring area, and they just leave it to heal. When it does, the skin is smooth and wool-free so it doesn't attract flies. However, the procedure is done without pain management, and the wound takes five to seven weeks to heal. Like the banded lamb Micro talked about, these mules lambs stop eating, playing, and can't relax. They avoid people, they stand hunched, they don't lie down, they don't want to walk. Obviously, it's pretty terrible, but it's quick, effective, and five to seven weeks of misery for 12 to 15 years of healthy life is kind of an okay trade-off, right? Most importantly, it was the only method they had back then. But it's not then, we're living now. Now we have research and alternatives. Alternative number one, staining. This is another breach modification protocol that involves applying liquid nitrogen to the back end of the sheep, freezing or basically chemical burning the same area of skin off. Anyone left Neron too long? It is as painful as mulesing. Alternative number two, selective breeding. Just as we bred sheep with finer and heavier fleeces, we can breed for resistance to fly strike, shorter tails, or less wrinkles. But that takes time and oodles of money and sacrifices of fleece quality or other hard-won characteristics in trade for this one thing that doesn't result in income. Please don't be mad at the producers. This didn't happen overnight. They aren't responsible for the Merino breed, and we're on at least third generation of this management practice. It takes time to make changes. There are financial incentives in the wool market now for non-mulesed wool, and that will help. 
The most important thing is awareness, which changes buying practices and shifts cultural values. Australia committed to phase out mulesing in 2004, with a first deadline in 2010 that did not get met. In that six-year period, $40 million was spent on fly strike prevention and treatment. A lot of great research is available regarding culling wrinkles and breeding for fly strike resistance. New chemicals are available to help keep flies at bay. New pain management drugs are being developed that will cost around $1.30 a lamb. Humans are perhaps the most curious of Earth's creatures, often to our detriment. I know some of you are going to hit the internet if you haven't multitasked already. This is an emotional issue. No sane person wants to watch or think about a baby suffering. We're here to be scientists. So when you read headlines, clickbait, or comments, stop and read it two or three times. Really look at the words. Mulesing is not about wool production. These sheep are not skinned to make Uggs or for any wool growing benefit. Remember, they're actually losing the wool in that area. This is a practice for health and safety, for the benefit of not being eaten alive by maggots. Now, can they do better? Certainly, and they should. I simply caution against making value judgments until you, like Mike Rowe, have physically stood in that situation. What can you do? Refrain from emotional posting. Make logical and informed decisions, like personally choosing to only use non-mulesed merino. If you are a fiber artist, choose to work with other breeds. Search for non-mules producers and buy from them, or buy American Merino from New England or Montana. The number one top thing I need you to do is avoid propaganda about agriculture. Most of the videos are staged or designed to trigger emotional bias. When you encounter a message, ask why no less than six or seven times. Go to the source. We live in a global society, shepherds. There's no excuse for not finding a first-person source. That said, you may have to ask several people before you find one willing to talk with you, because we're quick to condemn, are we not? So when you approach a farmer, tell them up front that you'd like credible information about fill-in-the-blank so you can form your own opinion. They'll be happy to share. Relieved, even. As I stated at the top, don't bother rating or reviewing the podcast this week. Instead, please share the link to the FDA intent to ban antibiotics. Don't forget to leave your comments in support of us farmers. Again, that link is available in the show notes. I'm truly psyched for this Arizona trip next month. I'll be bringing back some great audio, and that is thanks in large part to Lori Prestia, Melissa Huffman, Matthew Clegg, and Cody Amore. To join them in selecting where I go and what I do, as well as to receive great bonus content, visit patreon.com slash ovinology. It's not too late to give the gift of ovinology and Ballyhoo Fiber Emporium this holiday season. Got a friend who loves to grill? Buy him a box of farm-raised meat. For the fiber lover who has enough yarn, get a set of Lima Pop Shop's Rorovsky Crystal Stitch Markers, some merch from the Ovinology store on Teespring, or a yarn ornament. And for that person who loves to do instead of get, give a gift certificate for one of our farm-to-table or workshop events. All this and more at ballyhoofiberemporium.com. Until next week, take your airborne, drink your orange juice, slurp your soup, and bundle up. It's cold out there but the world is a better place with sheep.